Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. This show is what happens when two biologists self-isolate together and are trying to do something with their spare time other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. She's had a great week this week. She's been really busy sitting in the conservatory, watching starlings in the garden, pretending that she's going to hunt them, but then realising there's a pane of glass in the way. Yeah, we're responsible cat owners. We don't let her actually hunt the starlings. Yeah, and then when the starlings aren't in the garden, and she has fights with leaves. The leaves are really quite aggressive. They're coming for her. Yeah, I think it's about 5-0 so far this summer. To the leaves. To the Obviously to the leaves. Yeah. Well, you know what? She's trying. And in lockdown, that's all we can do. We're just trying our best. So props to the cat. Anyway, I think it's time for some science. Science of the week. First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. Are you ready to be tested? Yep. Number one. Why has a zoo in Canada had to make plans to send two giant pandas back to China four years early? Ooh, I haven't heard about this. I have no idea. Can you guess? No. Is it because the pandas have been really bad house guests? Pandas aren't breeding? I mean, probably not, but that's pandas. Yeah, I've I've no idea. Okay, because they can't source enough bamboo to keep feeding them because of COVID. Oh, yeah. So ninety nine percent of giant pandas' diets consist of fresh bamboo, which Calgary Zoo was sourcing from China to feed its two residents, Urshun and Dalmao. But because coronavirus has grounded most flights, the zoo decided they can't guarantee a steady supply of bamboo throughout the crisis. So the two giant pandas arrived in Canada in 2014 and spent five years at Toronto Zoo before moving to Calgary. So they're doing a little, you know, Canadian tour. And then they were meant to stay in Calgary for another 10 years. But instead, it looks like their homeward bound flight will be very soon. Do you know what quantity of bamboo an average adult giant panda eats in a day? It's going to be in the kilos. Uh, 30 kilos? Not too far. 40 kilos. That's nearly half their body weight. Yeah. It's a huge amount. Yeah, that's tons. I mean, they get barely any nutrition from it because they're evolutionarily carnivores that have re-evolved to eat essentially giant grass. So they don't really have the gut adapted to be able to process plant food. Yeah, I mean, I thought I ate a lot, but 40 kilograms. Yeah. But you know what? As I said before, they're doing their best. Evolutionary dead end, but they're doing their best. Number two. We all know someone who is guilty of overusing Dr. Google. A new study looked at free symptom checkers accessible on the internet in Australia by giving these checkers accurate symptoms to certain conditions. In what percentage of the tests did the symptom checkers list the correct diagnosis first? 30%. Not far off. I think I'll give you that. 36%. Yeah, that's... uh... That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Well, it turns out Dr. Google, not qualified. No. Are you surprised, though? Hardly. I mean, what, it takes five years at university, followed by how many years of clinical training to really become highly skilled and kind of, you know, they're, they're learning on the job all the time. So it's fairly unlikely that Google can learn to do that. Yeah, I'm not entirely surprised. These results were reported in the Medical Journal of Australia by Hill et al. And it was published last week. And basically, they made up hypothetical people and submitted symptoms from real conditions into these symptom checkers and assessed how often the checkers came up with the right diagnosis. The conditions simulated ranged from life-threatening emergencies to ones that needed urgent but not emergency care to those that were easily treatable at home and not serious. 
if you look at the top three suggested diagnoses, the symptom checkers do a little better with 52% accuracy. But it's still, it's that's not good. It's 52% not... accuracy when you've got three options there. Is, yeah. That's appalling. It's pretty terrible, isn't it? I mean, if you were a doctor, you'd really hate Googlers, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, so the authors point out that the checkers did often recommend more urgent care than was necessary, which I suppose makes sense because they're erring on the side of caution. But that's not good for people with health anxiety either, no, is it? I mean, people. Exactly. Because they're going to get a more pessimistic diagnosis than they need. But it does back up the idea that you can pretty much type any symptoms into Google and there will be a page telling you you're going to die. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, even if, it, if it's 50% accurate with three options, that only means that one of those options is actually what you've got and the other two are complete rubbish. Could be anything. Could be anything, yeah. Don't trust Dr. Google. Number three. What clever method have scientists discovered that bumblebees are making use of to trick plants into blooming? Oh, this is super cool. Mm-hmm. They're, they're cutting little holes in the leaves and the idea is that the, the bees only do it when they're hungry and they need food. But by doing that, they can trigger the plants into flowering up to 30 days earlier. Yeah, But what I days. thought was really cool about this was when the scientists tried to replicate it, they couldn't do it. Yeah, it is so cool. So yeah, they're, they're basically just nibbling the leaves, creating a bit of damage, and it's causing the plants to flower up to 30 days early. Yeah. It's absolutely mad. mad. This was reported by Pasha Lidu et al. in Science Yesterday. And it is just, it's a crazy discovery. Yeah, that's nuts. The, the fact that the scientists can't replicate it but it looks like it's actually what the bees are doing makes you think there must be something other than the mechanical interference that's doing it so are they adding chemicals or something like what else are they using well that's the a thought at the moment so yeah it's not just literally the mechanical process potentially there's a chemical cue yeah but that's mad and the thing that i find even weirder about this is that this is a behaviour that must have been under our noses all this time and we haven't really thought about it. Yeah, and yet I think they also commented that one of the scientists had said the shapes that they make are quite distinctive. Now that they've learned to recognise them, they've started to notice them in like leaves in their salad and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, so the, the clues have been there for forever, probably. They've and been there all And we've just not long. noticed, yeah. I feel now like it's one of those memes with the woman like doing all the calculations in her head. It's just me going, oh, the holes in the leaves. It was the bees all along. <laughs> Number four. To what personal hygiene product have a group of scientists in the Czech Academy of Sciences Institute of Geophysics and the Open University likened the flows of Martian mud volcanoes? Would this be toothpaste? <laughs> this is this is boiling toothpaste. Oh, yeah, boiling toothpaste. To be specific. That. So like on Earth, there are thought to be volcanoes on the surface of Mars that spew mud. But since the atmosphere and pressure on Mars is very different to Earth, it raised the question of how these eruptions would play out. In Brozatel, published in Nature Geoscience this week, they explain how they use control chambers to simulate the conditions on both Earth and Mars. And in Mars, that's low pressure, low temperature. And under the Earth conditions, the mud poured like gravy. Yummy. But under Mars conditions, the mud spurts along like boiling toothpaste. Even yummier. Exactly. Tasty. The outer fluid freezes to create a skin, which momentarily stops the flow. But then the force of the inside molten fluid breaks through, like spurting out. Doesn't it sound lovely? I think it's actually similar to eruptions that happen on Earth as well, though. So there are volcanoes on Hawaii that erupt, and for some reason, I'm not really sure why, do the same thing where the the outer layer cools really quickly. And so it looks like it's forming solid rock, but then underneath you've got this molten lava still that just slowly bursts its way forward. 
Yeah, and you get these really pretty patterns. Yeah, it I looks mean, really obviously cool. it's scary, but yeah, the patterns are amazing. And you've you got a similar sort of thing going on in these control chambers. So anyway, think about that when you're brushing your teeth tonight. Number five, what will be emerging in their millions in the next few weeks across North Carolina and Virginia? Ooh, I'm going to think this must be monarch butterflies. No, although good guess. Mm. Anything else that might emerge in massive groups? Periodic cicadas? Yes, cicadas. So specifically, three species of the genus Magicicada, which are periodical cicadas, which only emerge once every 17 years, then engage in lots of very noisy mating calls, mate and die within a few weeks. But then their egg will hatch into nymphs which will bury underground where they'll stay feeding on sap from plant roots until they too emerge as adults in 17 years time that's super cool it's amazing isn't it it's so confusing and, and we've, I, I think we still have no idea how they count exactly. how, how do they know that 17 years is up when they're underground i mean i wouldn't be able to count 17 years I barely will be able to count 17 days if you buried me underground. And I know that Australian bushfires and COVID and a huge swarm of insects kind of sounds like the apocalypse, but I actually think this sounds really wonderful. Like, imagine how dramatic it must be when they all emerge pretty much synchronously. Yeah, it's, it's just phenomenal. And it's such a great strategy as well. Like, the, the selective pressure for it is really cool. Although I still can't quite get my head around it, how they can manage to evolve it that well. But it's basically the idea that by emerging together, they can overwhelm predators. So they'll do really well because there are so many of them that predators can't possibly eat them. And by being so spaced out, they're an unreliable food source, so they can't sustain predators for a long time. But normally species do that like, you know, wildebeest on the Serengeti all breed at the same time, but they still breed every year. Whereas these guys are like, no, no, we'll just wait. We'll wait. We'll keep waiting. We'll keep waiting. We're good. And then 17 years later, like, hey there, how you doing? And also 17 years, that's a prime number. Yeah. And I think I think there are other species that do, like, 13 years yeah. and stuff, but it's always prime numbers so that predators can't even sink multiples. Exactly. Oh, so cool. Mad. So apparently at the peak, they're expecting about 1.5 million cicadas per acre. Take that in. 1.5 million per acre. <sighs> That's phenomenal. And apparently their mating calls can be as loud as a lawnmower. Not each individual one, all of them at once. Yeah, I'd rather listen to that than a lawnmower, I think. It's very true. Okay, so at the end of that round, I'm going to give you three and a half because you got cicadas on the second guess. So I think that's worth half a point, just about. Thank you. Uh, that's not bad. No, that's all right. We'll, we'll go with acceptable. Sli- slightly better than average. Mediocre. Yeah. Journal Club. Next up, we're going to share with you a couple of our favourite papers. What have you got? Well, this is actually our second piece of Canadian-based news for today's show. But Canada's great, so that's fine. Do you know what scientists have discovered to help maple syrup producers decide if their batches taste off? No, I don't. Well, Forest Natal from the Université de Montréal have invented what some are referring to as a golden tongue, which can determine whether maple syrup is good enough to be sold as maple syrup or has to be downgraded for industrial use. So I'm guessing that should probably give you a little bit more information about maple syrup here that'll make all of this make sense. Yeah, and also what a golden tongue is. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, it turns out that maple syrup production is actually quite an art. Maple syrup is produced by boiling down the sap from sugar maple trees, half 
harvested during the snowmelt days in spring. Sounds all very romantic. But there are different categories of maple syrup based on when in the season it's harvested, also environmental conditions of the plantation and and the weather at the time and the boiling process. And these change the colour and the taste of the resulting maple syrup. And to be sure that only high quality maple syrup is being sold as such, the syrup undergoes tests to determine its colour, presence of lead, sugar content and taste. So occasionally... If you're a very unlucky maple syrup harvester, you get a batch with what they describe as a taste defect. As well as reading the paper in Analytical Methods, I've been doing a deep dive into a website called The Maple News, which is a publication which describes itself as all things maple. This sounds like something you get on Have I Got News for You as a guest publication. It's really, it's really great. Apparently, The Maple Industry's most read trade publication. So I feel like I'm in good hands with their info. So they list lots of things that can cause an off taste and all the potential causes of it. It's very complicated and I've learned that maple syrup is basically like fine wine. So this off taste is clearly problematic. But until recently, there was no quick test to check for this off taste in large numbers of samples at once. What a nightmare. What's a maple syrup producer to do? Lick their maple syrup? Yeah, but you can't lick all the maple syrup. Actually, maybe I could. Okay, you just probably, a little bit. Just a tiny bit of maple syrup. Just a teeny yeah. tiny bit. But that would take time, right? Yeah. And also probably give you a sugar rush. So they banded together with scientists. Obviously, always a good idea. And this team of scientists in Montreal specialise in the use of gold nanomaterials. And they've developed a test using gold nanoparticles to detect this off taste. So at a nanoscale, gold actually appears red. Did you realise that? No. Mm. But in the presence of the molecules that are associated with the off taste, the gold particles clump, causing them to turn blue. This technique only uses about one millionth of a gram to run a test. So it's not like pouring maple syrup onto a gold necklace. Although that does sound like something you'd get on one of those like artsy perfume commercials. Yeah, that's the way that M&S will be selling it in a few years' time. Exactly. So anyway, it's also affordable for the maple syrup industry. Very important. The scientists have basically compared the test to like a test for the pH of a swimming pool. Something that's done totally routinely. You just pour a few drops of maple syrup into the nano gold reagents and voila, within about 10 seconds, you'll see whether it discolours or not. But you're like me and you really hate food waste. So you'll be glad to hear that if it does discolour, because it's not pre quality it doesn't just get chucked it actually gets used as an industrial grade sweetener in other foods Mm, that's good and here's a little maple syrup test because i've got to use my knowledge from the maple news do you think that the lighter more delicate maple syrup comes at the start or the end of the season i'm gonna go with the start you're correct Mm. it changes in strength throughout the season and generally the light stuff comes at the beginning i just really like the idea that maple syrup production is as fancy and complex as wine production Because I don't drink, but I love the idea of, you know, going to a wine tasting event at a pretty vineyard. So I was very excited to find out that maple syrup tasting tours are a thing in the northern USA and Canada. And that's much more your kind of thing with your sweet tooth. Exactly. Oh, we've covered my sweet tooth in previous episodes. But yeah, so I thought this is very cool. Turns out there is a lot to maple syrup. I reckon there are a lot of foods like this. The Mm. wine people try and keep all the other ones down so that we don't realise. But actually, all sorts of foods are special. It's not just wine. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of joking about the maple news here, but there is a lot of knowledge that goes into producing maple syrup. Yeah. And this is why, I guess, rightly so, the Canadians are very proud of their maple syrup. Yeah. I've got to say as well, I think the lead author on that study was called Forrest. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed it wasn't more tree-based. But having a guy called Forrest who's publishing on maples is still is still pretty good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Nominative determination. Moving away from maple syrup, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to answer another long-held question this week. Have you ever wondered why pigeons 
that you get flying around cities often don't have as many toes as they should do. I've actually, I know that was kind of a joke, but I have wondered that so many times. Yeah, so this is the thing, right? Like, I I feel like this is something that when people who aren't really interested in birds or nature find out that you're interested in birds, they kind of go, well, why does that pigeon have so few toes then? (laughs) As a sort of joke. But actually, it's it's kind of a serious question. Like, we think of feral pigeons as being vermin or, or something that shouldn't be on the streets, but actually, they potentially kind of useful bioindicators for what's going on in our cities and of course they are animals as well so we should we should love and care for them just the same as everything else so i'm still giggling the idea that you go i like birds and someone goes why that pigeon got so few toes i've genuinely had that happen (laughs) you associate with the wrong people It says something about the kind of people I went to school with. Anyway, this is a paper from Biological Conservation, published late last year, by Frederick Gigouet et al. And they set out to try and determine what it was that caused pigeons to lose their toes, because it's actually something that we didn't really know. So people have always kind of assumed that this was something to do with pollution or or possibly chemicals that were in in cities. That's what I heard, yeah. Yeah, or it could be something to do with mechanical defences that are put up to... to discourage pigeons from roosting on buildings mm. that are actually then entangling their feet slightly and, and causing deformities. Or it could be that because there are a lot of them and they're living in a kind of dirty environment, they're getting viruses or bacteria that are causing their toes to fall off. And I mean, particularly at the moment, that idea of having zoonotic diseases flying around feral populations that are living close to people is not something that's particularly attractive but could be quite important to know about. So working at different sites across Paris, this group went out and counted the number of toes on different (laughs) pigeons which sounds like fantastic fieldwork. Your eyes must go fuzzy after counting that many pigeon toes. Yeah, so I suppose I suppose the advantage of feral pigeons is that you can get close to them because they're True. pretty tame, right? So maybe you don't even need binoculars. You can just sort of sit in a cafe drinking some coffee. They didn't they didn't go into that kind of depth in their methods, but I reckon Parisian cafe, outdoor dining, drinking a coffee, just counting the toes on the pigeons that wander by to feed on your breadcrumbs. Yeah, this is growing on me. Sounds like good field work, yeah. actually. Yeah. Anyway, so they did this, and then they looked at a, a load of other predictive variables across the city that they thought might explain pigeons' toes. So they looked at human population density, both in terms of the number of people living in the region, but also in terms of traffic through by looking at inflow and outflow of the metros. They looked at variation in air pollution across the city, noise pollution across the city, and they also curiously looked at hairdressers. Mm. And this is the interesting thing. So so they found, as predicted, that pigeons lost more toes in more polluted areas of the city, both in terms of noise pollution and in terms of air pollution. And so the air pollution could be some kind of direct chemical effect, and the noise pollution could be some kind of proxy for, for human density. But it's the hairdressers that's the really interesting thing. Mm. So this hypothesis comes from the idea that pigeons' feet can get tangled in things, and essentially they can garrot their toes off if they get caught in string or wire or... Ooh human hair oh no yeah so a lot of pigeons with mangled toes do show signs of rather than it being some kind of infection it's almost like a cleaner cut that something's come off and that there's there's signs of string or hair being left around them and so the hypothesis was that maybe that was actually the cause of a lot of these toes being lost yeah it turns out that the occurrence of pigeons with missing toes correlates with the density of hairdressers in that area of the city. No. Yeah. That's really sad. It is quite sad, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Because essentially, like, it's not that, obviously, hairdressers aren't just chucking out all of the cut hair onto the street, but simply that there will be some waste when stuff gets taken away and some will overflow and it's getting out into the environment and that that is not safe for pigeons and presumably other birds as well, but potentially we can't measure those as easily because they're less easy.
easy to see than the missing toes on pigeons. Yeah, well, I've heard that when you, because I have very long hair, that's why I molt like a dog, I've heard that when you clean out a hairbrush, you should put it in the bin, you shouldn't put it outside, because that was traditional idea. You put it outside and birds can use it for their nests, but apparently you shouldn't because they can get stuck in it. Yeah. So this does make sense. Yeah. So what does this mean for hairdressers? Is there any advice? Well, they don't really go into this. I suppose that generally it's a call for sort of cleaner streets because it's not just hair it's also things like string and rubbish and stuff so keeping our streets tidier is probably going to be good for birds and the bigger picture that they present is that obviously the hairdressers correlated but the noise and the air pollution were actually the the bigger determinants and so having green spaces within our cities is potentially good for our urban wildlife as well as as for people because it gives them space to go and seek refuge so out of interest does tow loss cause any big problems for pigeons i mean it certainly doesn't kill them because because obviously you see them wandering around with it. Certainly if they lose too many toes, it might impair their ability to forage because it makes it harder for them to walk around. Yeah, potentially that impairs survival and breeding success. The other thing that was interesting about this was they specifically tested to see whether there was any impact of disease. And to do that, they hypothesised a couple of different things. So apparently darker pigeons are less prone to disease than lighter pigeons. So they hypothesised that if it was down to disease, paler pigeons would have more toe mutilations than darker pigeons. And that wasn't the case. There was no difference Mm. but they also hypothesized that if it was down to disease then pigeons that had lost toes on one foot were more likely to have lost toes on another foot so so you're more likely to not just find one missing toe but many missing toes Mm. but that also wasn't the case there was no correlation between loss of toes on feet so there was no real evidence that this was anything to do with disease and it was everything to do with various types of human produced pollution that's interesting because we think of pigeons as really getting along with humans and that they thrive off the food that we drop and and in general the environment that we create but not so yeah well i mean yes and no right Mm. feral pigeons occur in most cities around the world because they're descended from rock doves and rock doves naturally live on cliffs and so in our cities we've created artificial cliffs that are prime nesting habitat with some easy access to food resources. But yeah, in other ways, in terms of individual pigeon health, the outlook's not quite so rosy. So what I'm taking away from this is when you see a stumpy pigeon in a city, show them a little bit of compassion. Isolation recommendations. So we like to round off each show with a few of our science-related isolation tips. What have you got? Well... I feel like everyone's getting a little bit down in lockdown. We need a bit of a pick-me-up. So I'm going to recommend this week a Twitter account called Conservation Optimism, and that's at Conserve Optimism. And this is an account which essentially tweets good news stories about conservation projects that are going well, where they've had a positive effect on populations and, you know, maybe there's a there's a win-win scenario for people and nature. That's really interesting because most of the time we just hear doom and gloom and about how difficult conservation is. Essentially, the idea is that there's too much doom and gloom in conservation. So it can feel like everything's declining and, and it's all bad news when actually there's a lot of good stuff out there and there's there is good evidence that if we hadn't done a lot of the conservation interventions that we have done the world would be in a much worse state than it is so we've had an impact and we've had some positive outcomes and so this twitter account is all about sharing those stories i like that that's really positive what about you what's your recommendation well one thing i think is really cool right now is how museums are stepping up to the challenge of providing resources to the public during lockdown and i've spoken before on my other camera show us and Step 
them about the great work that the Zoology Museum in Cambridge is doing. So do check out their website for loads of free activities, games and learning materials. But something else cool that I discovered this week is virtual museum tours. One that you should check out is the one created by the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. They've got high quality 360 degree imagery of the whole museum. So you can literally take a tour of it from your living room. And if you've got one of those like funky VR headsets, it's even compatible with those. So it's almost like being there. It's super cool. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really exciting. I'm going to show you it after this. I mean, if I weren't in lockdown, I still wouldn't be in Washington, D.C. So this is a very cool resource either way. Yeah. For museums that are on the other side of the world, it's perfect at any time. Exactly. Yeah. So those are our recommendations for the week. But before we go, we just wanted to give you an update on something we mentioned on a previous show, the White Stork Project. We were excited because two of the three stork nests at the Nepa State contained eggs. But since then, there's even bigger news. The eggs in one of the nests have hatched. Yay! Yeah! These are the first white stork chicks to hatch in the UK in hundreds of years. How are you feeling? That's really cool. It's really exciting. exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, we could definitely talk about this a lot longer, but we're running out of time. So in summary, congratulations to the happy stork parents from us here at Lockdown Science. Yeah, I like how it's storks with babies. It seems very appropriate. It's so appropriate. Usually they bring us babies and this time they're bringing themselves babies. We brought them babies. The conservationists who reintroduced them bought them some babies. Oh, Oh. full circle. Conservation optimism right there. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for cool science you think we should look into ready for next week's show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. And since I'm CamFM's head of publicity, you can also contact me via email at publicity at camfm.co.uk. And I might pass the message on to him if I'm feeling particularly nice. She normally does. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure you tune in in two weeks' time at 6.30 for another episode of Lockdown Science on CamFM. Music